HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We do more varieties and flavors of cheese than anywhere else on earth. By pushing the boundaries of what cheese can and should be, find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Eric Asimov. We'll talk to Eric about what else, wine, the year ahead, and a lot more. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Eric Asimov is the longtime wine critic of the New York Times. His wine column, The Poor, appears every Wednesday in the food section of the Times in print and online. Eric recently concluded almost nine years and 100 columns of his wine school. Post-COVID times have allowed Eric to travel around the world, taste wine, and meet the winemakers for the first time in years. He's published numerous books about wine and shares the torture of the New York Jets with me. <laughs> Welcome back to the Great Nation, Eric. Great to see you, Sam. So it's great to have you as our first guest um, of the new year, 2023, for the Grape Nation. And I couldn't think of uh, anyone better. To kick but did the you have to mention the Jets? Well, so I just blew the whole vibe, right? <laughs> We're both. Well, we don't have to worry about Sunday's game. You know, That's true. doesn't mean That's anything. true. Um, yeah, it's, we don't want to get into that. I'm glad our friend Gary Vaynerchuk's not around. He would have probably thrown the mic against the wall. Um, so... You know, I was towards the end of last year, I was putting together this year and I was thinking, you know, what type of guests the show has morphed into really the story, not the biggest wine, the best wine, the most obvious stuff. There's some great stories there. And 
you and I have sat down in Charleston a bunch of times. Um, you've been on the show before. And when I think about stories, great stories, people, that's what you do. You're a story crafter, you're a storyteller, you're an information messenger. Um, so I thought it would be fun, um, you know, to sit down and kind of frame the year um, with with you. Um, but I'd spoken to you off air about this, and I wanted to talk to you about it a little. You know, since COVID has subsided, and God knows where it is today. I mean, we're not out of the woods. Um, but you were able to do some traveling. Um, I want you to tell me about some of the destinations, you know, who you met, what you tasted. Um, and are these subjects of upcoming col uh, columns? Um, did you meet anybody that really wowed you, you know, that's memorable? I remember the last time you were on, um, you were just in love with Chianti Classico as a value. I still am. At, right. As, you know, uh, as a value, quality to value and all of that, you know, so what's sort of the next thing? Um, so tell me a little... Before we get into things, tell me a little about your travels, because literally, like I said, you sat around for two years. You know, um, I, it wasn't quite two years, and I actually started traveling again in, in the summer of 2021 when we that were window? all vaccinated and we thought, okay, you know, we're past this. And um, right. no, um, started again in the spring of 22 and actually did a lot of, of traveling Um but found myself, uh, especially in the early part of the year, in situations that seemed to me to be uh, super spreader events. And I had <laughs> I had COVID pretty badly before I was vaccinated and lost my sense of smell or had it muffled for a long time. Oof. And so I, I started to get a little paranoid and uh, retreated from from the traveling. Uh, and didn't go anywhere for for a long time um, until just recently when I was in the UK for a while. Um, but I was in uh, I was in California uh, multiple times. Actually, did uh, a bunch of wine events around the country. Was up in Vermont. Um, uh, was in Burgundy for the first time in a few years, which was great. Was Burgundy fun. an event thing or just visiting no, no, and that tasting? Was, that was for, I did a couple of stories right. when I was there. Um, right. I did a piece on uh, Savigny-les-Bons Savigny um, and also a, um, a vineyard up in, uh, in Fissin that in the 19th century was regarded uh, as the equivalent of a Grand Cru and is now um, – somewhat forgotten uh who is uh, it uh, claude de perriere okay um and it's it's really quite a good wine and and um uh the the guy the head of the family currently who's owned that place for a long time um is intent on on bringing it back and you know we'll see our 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 notions of, of terroir and burgundy are so you know, fixed in in right. concrete that it's hard to get a lot of uh, specifically. Burgundy. You know, you you get cool producers more than you get new cool terroirs. But. Right now, Fisan is 
I always make my guests spell stuff out as F-I-X-I-N, right? Exactly, yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm the worst at French. But go back for a second because one of the things that I like to get out of people is a lot of people don't drink Burgundy because of accessibility, because of price. Because of price, yes. You know, it's crazy. But the whole point of your story was they're making – Tell me a little about what the story is about, Savigny Le Bon. Well, yeah, Savigny Le Bon is a um, – it's kind of off the beaten trail in Burgundy when you think of the the great um, town, Savigny doesn't really come up. Um, neither does Bone itself, that for that matter, for wine. And because these places don't quite have the status – um, of, you know, Gevray Chambertin or Volnay or, you know. Even the way uh, St. George, you know, which has a name. Yeah, even if of these other places, they tend to get um, ignored at least by collectors and, and the people who drive up the prices because they're, they're after the big names, the trophies. So that leaves the rest of us the opportunity to, you know, drink while we can and uh, Savigny was really interesting to me because it's got kind of a, uh, a, a cluster of young producers who are really um, uh, working well, not, not only in the uh, vineyard, but in the cellar and, and making wines that are just really uh, expressive and beautiful. And um, some of them are already kind of mini cults themselves, like uh, Chantreve. Yeah. Um, you know, but you can still, I mean, uh, you know, Simon Bees has been a great producer for a long time, but in terms of, of pricing, it's still, you know, relative to the Burgundy scale. So it's, that's, it's, that's it's, a great value. Yeah. That's, that's a great find. Um, I forgot the... Chandon de Briaille. Uh, the, these the, are wonderful the wines. guy worked for Simon Bees. Yes, I mean, He yes. left to concentrate yes. um, uh, there. Um, so for Burgundy, that's that's an area to look for. You know, you go into your favorite good wine store. And, and the, you know, there's always more. Uh, Becky Wasserman used to kind of um, argue all the time that, you know, we always focus on the most expensive Burgundies, but there are all kinds of, of far more reasonable wines and you know that's true that is definitely true there are great um uh Cote de Nuit, Cote de Bone, Bourgogne um you know you miss out on the fun of kind of uh terroir analytics than saying oh you know this really tastes right. like a like a Volnay or right. a Pomard, but uh, but, snobby, but you've got great wines. Yes, yeah. Yeah. it's not so much snobby as it is just you know, uh, Burgundy's that that sort of wine that appeals to you both you know soulfully and and intellectually and um, true. You know, it's it's at its best when you get the both elements. True. Um, you said you're in California. I'm curious because you said you were doing events too. Did you? Um, visit this any was, this was not so much uh, uh, a wine you know, tasting winery tour. No, my my wine events were in. Um, you know, I was going to like Nantucket and and 
Charleston and Tulsa and uh, it was California wine, yeah, California wine. Wines. So that's a really in in interesting thing. Like Kevin Harvey at uh, Reese, which makes uh, very Wonderful. good, very expensive um, uh, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Chardonnay. Syrah, um, is also obsessed with the grapes of Etna. Um, uh, Specifically, um, Caracante, the white grape. Didn't they launch and, a project, Eris or something? Yes, yes. Isn't so that that's them? what I, I went to see his yeah. vineyard in in the uh, near the Sonoma Coast on, on uh, hills in the middle of nowhere, um, and was really impressed. He's also doing a, a Norello Mascalese and um, you know some blends, and it's just in the formative stages. But is anything in the barrel? Or? Um, oh, it's already in the bottle. Oh yeah, yeah. Know? I remember getting yeah. a letter so, for Eris years right. ago. Yeah. So um, yeah, I mean they planted the vineyards. I don't know six years ago or five or right. six years that ago, right. and yeah. I mean that's sort of an interesting trend. I mean a guy like Dan Petrowski packed in his, you know, big Napa cab job to make Italian whites only. Focusing on, yeah. well, you know, he's also, you know, his big seller happens to be Sauvignon Blanc, so mm. not entirely. Right. But, um, you know, there's so it's many true. interesting things going on. I went to uh, uh, a place called Piscinas Ranch because Spell. I've been – P and now you're really challenging take, me, take Sam. Take your time. Take your time. Uh, P A I C I N E S. Okay, I believe is Piscinus. correct. Okay, and there's a uh, a really um, interesting project there in regenerative agriculture, um, not only in wine, but I mean it's kind of a uh, a full. A, a unified farm where they're raising animals and crops and, and all kinds of uh, things. But what's really uh, interesting is that they are experimenting with having animals in the vineyard during the growing season. Now, I mean, it's no um, news that a lot of vineyards will bring in sheep to the, the vineyard after harvest eat or the before the grapes are and the cuttings yeah, and all that. You know, so they can eat the, the grass and, and so so on. But uh, the argument at uh, Piscinus is actually it's really healthy for the um, ecosystem and the biodiversity to have the animals there during the growing season because simply the the, the interaction of, of the animals and all their byproducts uh, with the with the earth and um, it, it just creates uh, so much life. So it's that it's, it, it just improves the. It's like the next step of regenerative, which is fairly yeah. new. But, the, but I have a question. I don't know if you know the answer or not. Um, do do winemakers keep sheep's out? During the growing season, because they potentially eat the grapes, or that's well, that's not exactly it. You know, the fear is that they will eat the grapes, eat the leaves, damage the the vines somehow. So, um, you know, there's a uh, because this is uh, an experiment almost from the beginning at Piscinus, they've trained the vines higher so that the sheep ah, don't really reach for smart. them. Um, you know, there's a similar experiment going on in, in Burgundy, which I, I visited uh, 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 Charles Lachaud of um, 
now I'm blanking on the name of of his uh, label, but it's noteworthy because not only is it like the the single most expensive wine or one of the most expensive wines in Burgundy right now, um, it's also really good. But he's kind of like – Because it's limited and – it's it's really good. It's good. Yeah. Um, It'll come to you during the show. Yes. He'll yell it out. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but he's also bringing uh, sheep into the vineyard, um, and he's doing all kinds of experiments with um, uh, training the vines and, and uh, how they're planted, how they're um, um, staked rather than on wires. And, um, you know, it's fascinating, especially in a place like Burgundy, which, you know, might be have been in the vanguard with biodynamics, but it's still kind of conservative in right. what it uh, what it does. Right. I mean, I think the world's most famous expensive wine, Romani Conti, has been biodynamic for many years. Yes, forever, and and so have uh, many of the the best of them. Right, Domaine Arnoux Lachaux. Oh, L A C H A U X. Yes, A R N O U X. Right, L A C H A U X. So the wines are incredible. They're expensive. You said yes. I mean, I can't. I can't possibly afford them. Um, you know, it's like fifteen hundred dollars for a Bourgogne. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> or an alley. I mean, an yeah, alley right? <laughs> Does he but, make macané uh, or is that what you know? No, I mean he's yeah. got great, you know, Grand Cru vineyards yeah. too. Yeah. But it, it's it's a fat. It's fascinating um, what he's doing, and so I I'm I'm really interested in in these ex- experiments around wine because you know it's part of. Um, the future, and if you're concerned about the environment and about climate change, um, about the quality of uh, agriculture, and, and about the wine itself, these are just are are wonderful to see. And um, you know, it's I'm I'm not an an agronomist. It's sometimes it's difficult for me to judge um, exactly. Um, you know the uh, the effect of this sort of viticulture on on uh, on the earth. Um, you know how right. does it last? How how does it function in a drought? I mean, there's a debate, a healthy debate that goes on among people who are all very concerned with farming and are very conscientious. But to me, you can um, you can certainly taste. Uh, in the wine, you know, the, the quality of farming. Yeah. I mean, our friend Raj Parr in Cambria, Can't, north, exactly. north of, uh, yes. way north of Santa Barbara, yes. has introduced animals, chicken. Well, you know, he's also on my list and I had wanted to visit him last year, but he was in, I don't know, he was in Europe when I was I did visit so. and it's worth a visit. Yeah. So you should do that because it plays into everything we've been discussing. Yes. In a bit, I want to talk to you about natural wine and we'll come back to that. But you had mentioned to me that part of your traveling, and I want to kind of close that section, you were in London. Yes. And, you know, London is not a big wine growing, mega, but tell me what was going on in London. 
Well, you know, we've been um, shut up largely for for however many years. How how many years is it? It's almost three years right. now. Uh, Coming to March. You know, the last year opened up somewhat. And I, you know, I kind of got in the habit of writing about wines that you can buy at the store or, you know, order on the Internet and have delivered. You were forced and, to um, that. You know, I, I, I would like, you know, in the next um, year to be writing more about um, – Going out to drink wine in restaurants and wine bars. Uh, I did a piece recently on New York wine bars. Um, and uh, I, I thought of the piece in London because, you know, there's a kind of a, a healthy competition between New York and London as two of the greatest places in the world to drink wine. You know, neither one of us uh, uh, – uh, Neither city is um, at the center of a historic wine-growing area, although both are, are fairly close to more modern uh, wine areas. Right. And so, you know, not being in the historic habit of drinking, you know, the local produce, you got wine from all over the world, which led to very discerning populations. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard to think of cities where you have uh, more options of better wines than, than London and New York. Paris, but I mean London. Well, Paris is extremely French-centered. And right. You, and, you know, you get great French wines, but you're not going to find great South African wines good for point. the most part. Or, or even American wines, which you can find in London. Good, good point. Um, so so I went to uh, London and I thought, I'll, I'll just do a piece of the best places, or not the best places. Let me rephrase that. Great places, right? To drink wine, and so I did a. Uh, it should be out. Uh, maybe when? maybe by the time we're on, we're so posted here. That's it should January. Be out next that, week. Okay, so first, we're talking first full week of January. We're talking early midish January. Yeah, um, whenever. Yeah, did places like um, Noble Rod or Noble Paul Rod's Rod in it? Fell on what's the second is one? Is it Palmel? No, kind of fancy. Uh, Sixty-seven Palm Mall is a. It's not fancy. Club? It's a private club, right. which so is access. a great place to drink wine, but not really. You know, that's another story, maybe. Right. Um, but you know, I, I wrote about restaurants, wine bars, uh, white tablecloth places, casual places, and. The only place I didn't really want to go to are the sort of, you know, three Michelin star or even multiple Michelin star restaurants that you you pretty much expect, right? you know, will have good wine. But, um, you know, I was in a more casual mode. Do um, you, as, as a writer and somebody who covers, you know, various topics within wine and, you know, you choose that. Do you, based on what we've just been discussing, is accessibility, price, quality, top of mind now? I mean, isn't it more fun to find these places or these wines than just looking at all the trophies or expensive wines or places? I mean, do, do you try harder? <laughs> well, uh, you know, partly, um, you know, price is an important uh, element, although it's not, you know, always a guiding 
principle. Um, accessibility is really difficult because, uh, you know, you can, a very expensive rare wine is difficult <clears throat> to find, but so is a very good cheap wine if it's small production. And this is always, uh, you know, uh, probably cheap the wine, but good. Yes. Not the cheap. The single crap. greatest complaint I get, and this is, you know, every single week uh, are people from people who say they can't find wines that I've recommended. And but I know you think about that, you know, based on how you write and how you shop. I, I, I know you've... I know that in some of your articles, you'll taste older wines, you know, with friends that are totally inaccessible or whatever. But a lot of the wines that you recommend, you seem to buy in the open market. I or do. But, but you know, if you think of the New York Times, um, it's not a city newspaper. It's, I mean, with the Internet, it's a global newspaper. So, you know, it's one thing to have you know, people reading me in Australia or Hong Kong right. or whatever. But, you know, the, the wine distribution system in the United States is so fragmented. And, you know, people who export uh, wines or sell wines in New York don't necessarily sell them in right. Chicago, much less, um, you know, Tucson or Oklahoma City. That's or a good point. And, or New Jersey. Right. And um, the only way that you can satisfy everybody uh, as far as accessibility is to write about mass-produced wines, which, which, you know, I very occasionally do, but most mass-produced wines are not good wines. Right. And I, I've decided in one sense not to compromise on – on that element, and and I, I my, the argument I make to myself is that we don't wines don't always have to be accessible. Um, it's important though to know that they exist, and it's important to to set a standard of of what a good you know pick your genre of wine is. So, yes, for these 15 of these 20 wines that I'm mentioning, you may not be able to walk home and, you know, stop at your local supermarket or bodega or wherever, whatever is most convenient for you to get the wine. But that's okay. I'm okay with that. Maybe you'll take a trip to um, – New York next year and you can find these wines or you could order it online or it's just good to know it exists. I think that's a um, fair, healthy, realistic way to talk about accessibility. It's it's the wines are there and that's yeah. important. Sometimes I mean, you can get them, sometimes you, know, you there, can't. There has to be I, – I don't ever want to gloat, you know, to say, I don't oh, think it well, ever look comes what across, I drank. I don't think it you, ever comes across that You way. didn't. But um, but what I would like to do is, is point out – and, you know, there are certain occasions where – uh, because of my job, I have access to rare or, you know, old wines that, that most people wouldn't. 
But there's there's some vicarious pleasure, I think, in that. I did a piece this year. I was invited to a dinner about uh, a, a, devoted to wines that were produced during World War II. And to me, what's fascinating is not so much the wines themselves, but the, um, the history, the, um, the meaning that wine was so important to people, particularly, you know, people who were under Nazi occupation, so important that they continue to produce it no matter what the, uh, no matter how brutal the circumstances right. and how dangerous. Um, That's a testament to wine is something more than a liquid in a glass. Yes, it says something we to talk the, about the farming, cultural, cultural importance of wine. Yeah, I mean, not a lot of things carry yeah. those ranges. And, you know, it just so happened that the, that the wines were great. To my surprise, because, you know, you don't think these were these were not known as great vintages and they're 80 years old. Um, but it was it was very uh, emotional. And I tried to convey that in the story. And um, I, I must have succeeded to some degree because I didn't get a lot of people saying, you know, oh, what good is this? I can't get the you know, they took it for what it is, yeah. you know, which was an observation and an opportunity to taste and talk yeah. beyond the liquid in the glass just for people. Cause you know, your stories are archived. When did you write that? Um, that I believe was in September of, of this of year, 2022. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it was, I, I don't, I remember seeing it. I'm not sure if I read it, but that's, you know, we can go back to that homework. Yeah. I have a lot of, a lot of homework. Um, all right. So I had mentioned to you, I wanted to ask you a broad question and, and I wanted to ask you because of, you know, what you do. And I want to know what issues, stories, wines, regions, winemakers you think will be in the news or covered this coming year, you know, and why. I think a lot of the things we talked about, regenerative farming, certain regions and all that, but climate change. I mean, are there things that are going to be stories because they should be stories? Well, uh, climate change and uh, viticulture, I think, are always going to be stories now, even if we More have... More than ever. Yes, um, because it affects everything now, you know, whether it's drought or flooding or hail or all of the things that are happening because of the climate crisis... Um, you know, that, that affects us fires every, every year. Uh, so even, this has all happened and they will continue. And they will continue and be to covered. happen. And, yeah. you know, how, so that's how, part of our wine how life. we adapt to it. Right. Um, you know, then there are, are things specific to the last couple of years, the uh, supply chain question, um, uh, Bottles, you know, one probably the story that I wrote last year that got the most attention was about was the problem with wine bottles, which are kind of ecological disasters. Crazy. And some wineries um, use double the glass. And you know, in in some in some strange ways, uh, I, I think we're going to go back just as we have in agriculture where. You know, the, the most far-seeing uh, uh, farmers are going back to, you know, the pre-chemical farming days. 
which is the way things were done forever. You know, I think at some point we're going to have to go uh, back before the single-use glass and single-use plastic days uh, when people reuse jugs and, and, um, and, you know, you didn't have the kind of waste and uh, problems that, that we do now. And I don't, I don't think people realize bottles is, is such an issue. You know, you, you yeah. think about, you know, regenerative agriculture, sustainability, but bottles right. fall. I mean, right the, in. the production and transport of, of glass bottles is the, uh, occupies the single biggest carbon footprint in, you know, in, in any wine's production and, uh, is that true? distribution? Yeah. Wow, I didn't realize. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the solutions are going to have to come and that's going to require people to um, learn new behaviors to, to kind of get used to inconvenience in a way that, you know, we all think we can't adapt, but we always can. Yeah, so. I, I hope that. I was in Uruguay about four years ago, invited by the government to drink wines. <clears throat> and I was at a small winery sitting outside with the winemaker as a woman. And people were just pulling up with big jugs, <laughs> filling up with wine. I think it was the economics there, but in reality, it was that's the way things yeah, used to be. They weren't seven fifty. Yeah, I mean, right. You know, yeah, demijohns. Yeah, or, I mean, we're not right. close to wineries. No. but we're going to have to figure a way to you know yeah. compromise. On but all you that. you know, um, I I always feel more comfortable looking back at you know, how we got here then. We then, did it. Then we did for, it without cell phones. We did for, it without fancy right. bottles, right? Looking forward at yeah. what's going to happen is always a little uncomfortable. But one, one thing I would predict is that you're going to get a lot of stories. Um, I've already seen them, in fact. People are going to say, oh, the you know, the rosé trend is going to die or natural wine. What natural wines aren't cool anymore and you know, yeah. pe people who, who attribute gauge. everything to to fashion and and trendiness uh, are ready for the next thing. Right. But, but people who see kind of inherent value in natural wines, and I think most uh, the hard hardest core of its fans and the most important part of its uh, constituency are, are deeply believe in it. They don't just feel yeah, that it's I, a I agree. I, I think that's fancy. That's the core, and I want to get into that a little more. But just staying on stories for the yes. coming year. What about emerging regions? I picked up somewhere where you talked about Chile. Well, I, I there's was a just lot of natural Chile. You know, I, yeah, we, because I, you know, this is very. This is again related to the natural wine phenomenon, where you have places like um, Chile. Australia, where, you know, where they've made like a, uh, they've done really good business as wine producers by just producing, you know, oceans of solid wine, maybe right. a lot of it's mediocre, a lot of it's uninteresting. And what, what is really considered good is on the very, you know, polished, sleek, high end of things. And in both places, I think in the last 10 years or so, 
the most interesting wines coming from it that are enough to, you know, any anybody who is kind of, you know, dismissive of Australia or right. of Chile, right. maybe even of Argentina, um, should be try tasting some of these wines, which I think are are wonderful and fascinating and and just. Uh, direct and unadorned um, wines that are just so good. What opened my eyes was I attended Raw Wine uh-huh. this past year, and I think there were 15, 18, 20 Chilean producers. Yeah. You know, when you see that, you go, there's something going on. I remember years ago, Eastern Europe, it's like, you know, what are they, even though they've been making wines forever. Um, I'll mention another place. Go, I was um, going to say, any before uh, we. Abruzzo. In, in Italy, in Italy um, on the east coast, uh, on the Adriatic, is it on the Adriatic or Not is it sure. the Adriatic? <laughs> now I'm now I'm blanking. Something with an A. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, on the east coast, but um, you know, uh, uh, Abruzzo, uh, Abruzzo has oh, has been another place that is known for big companies making kind of routine wines and in the last 10 or 15 years there have been um you know a bunch of younger producers who are farming better um making wine more conscientiously and um and really kind of um, a lot of them are women introducing yes reintroducing the words the world to to uh things like uh montepulciano right. d'abruzzo um uh, Pecorino, Trebbiano. Which is a that, terrific white um, wine, Pecorino. Yes. Um, Trebbiano d'Abruzze. Right. Um, which people were dismissive of before or just thought, okay, that's cheap wine. I, You know, that's good if I get a pizza or whatever. You're no, seeing it on are, restaurant really wine good. lists. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Chile and Abruzzo, those are two good ones. Um, all right, Eric, we have to take a quick break. Um, but when we come back, I want to talk to you. I want to get into natural wine a little more and cover a few other things. We're talking to Eric Asimov. Eric is the wine critic for the New York Times. You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin, the state of cheese, makes half of the nation's specialty cheese and wins more awards than any other state or country. Our heritage and traditions, master cheesemaker program, and the American propensity for innovation all put Wisconsin on the cutting wedge of cheesemaking. With over 600 varieties of cheese to choose from and 5,500 national and international awards and counting, Get ready to turn your refrigerator into a trophy case. Enjoying a Wisconsin cheese is basically like winning a gold medal in culinary achievement. Set your mind at cheese. When you bite into a wedge of Wisconsin Wonderful, you know it is made with the ultimate skill and passion possible. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Okay, we're back. We're back with my guest, Eric Asimov. Um, Eric, I won't let you leave the room without talking to you further about natural wine. And we've been talking about it in and out 
for the past half hour. Um, what I'm curious about is natural wine and you. And by talking about natural wine and you, you know, we'll talk about natural wine. But I want to talk in the context of your recognition of it, you know, consumption, uh, your view of it. Um, you, you mentioned to me off air, it wasn't defensive, but it was a quick response. It was, hey, I've been drinking and covering this stuff for 20 years. Um, I think you and I agree that it's, I hate to use the word vogue, but it's coming to prominence. Oh, within absolutely. the last decade. Yes. But when, when did this get traction, you know, with you? And was there a time like, hey, there's something going on here, but I don't know if I could write about this or... Um, well, I don't think so. I've been writing about it from, you know, from my first um, experience of it. So I don't even me, know that we call it natural wine. But um, tell me what that was or about in, when. In 2003, okay. I, was, um, I was writing a column called $25 and Under and that, you know, looking for inexpensive, unusual restaurants around the city. I went to a place it called – It was a restaurant. It was a restaurant more than wine, yeah. yeah. I went to a place called 360 in Red Hook. And 360, uh, in retrospect, was a seminal the, restaurant. The OG. An instrumental in, in establishing the uh, New York natural wine culture. And, and the um, proprietor, a guy named Arno Earhart, uh, he also had a guy named uh, Jorge, Jorge Riera working there, um, another guy named Laurent who now makes wine, wine. In, in the Loire. Um, Sayard, but, uh, I he, forgot his life. Laurent Sayard or I yeah, something I like believe that. that's yeah. it. Um, and uh, Arnaud would like walk around and if you thought you were likely would like hand you a glass of wine and say, try this. And he gave me a glass. I, I think back now it was like. Oh, wait, go backwards for a second. Don't yeah. lose your thought. Why did you go in there? Because you heard was, about it, or well, you? It had nothing to do with wine. I, you know, oh, always, it was the twenty-five and under. Yeah, yeah. Silly me. I'm sorry. Right. So um, go ahead. Which is crazy. and it happened to be like a really cool little bistro in Red Hook, right? Um, which then was really nowhere. Yeah. Um, and he gave me a. a a glass of what I now think is like the cult wine of natural wines, uh, Auvergnois, Huillon, uh, Sauvignon. And it is, it was like, I was like, Oh my God, what is this? Is Sauvignon. And I just assumed he said Sauvignon Blanc. Right. It doesn't taste like any Sauvignon right. Blanc I've ever had. Um, and the restaurant itself was great. I remember I gave it a great a rave the meal review. You can like read that review in in on you know the, on the internet somewhere, yeah. two thousand and three. But in, it got me really interested in these wines, and um, I think so. You the, literally walk out of there, sort of enlightened and with an open mind, looking forward, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, again, it, there was nothing we didn't call right. refer to and it, natural, and wine it wasn't at the everywhere time. at all. No, not at all. And um, I, I started writing about wine uh, full time the next year. And one of the early stories I did was what, what I considered, you know, this wine counterculture, this subculture that had its own 
like wine distributors like uh, Louis Dressner, its own restaurants like 360 and, and its own chat boards like a, a you know a place called wine therapy years so ago and, yeah. you know and and um to me it was fascinating and and the wines were could be really good and um you know i followed it since then as um you know, as stories came up a little bit more about this this thing called natural wine. When when people like Robert Parker kind of you know reacted uh, viciously and industry, peevishly yeah. about it, and and much of the industry did as it got more popular. The debate about whether you need a definition or not, right. whether there has to be some official body. Um, you know, all of these things to me have been interesting stories, but the most interesting thing, um, is that the natural wine over the last 20 years has been the single most influential force in wine around it. And, you know, you, people tend to think of natural wine as simply, oh, well, they don't put anything in it. Um, you know, you're, you're far, you're not, you're farming organically or, or smelly, cloudy, orangey stuff or something. But, but think of, uh, of everything else that has come with natural wine. First of all, uh, the attitude, uh, of many early natural wine producers was, you know what, we're not part of this kind of, um, wine establishment. We're not dealing with like reviews and scores and tasting notes. Um, we're not like really interested in the bureaucracy and getting their approval. So you have this kind of subversive attitude. Um, and, and what else, you know, the, uh, wine marketers and, and a lot of wine authorities have argued for years against, well, you can't have like dozens and dozens of different grapes because that's too complicated. Consumers need simplicity. So we want to simplify, simplify, simplify. Uh, so our little region in Italy becomes known for a single grape. And, and <laughs> you know, instead you have natural wine producers saying no. These grapes are, are our heritage. We're not all going to grow Sauvignon Blanc here or, you know, Merlot or Cabernet. And they're no. field blending them too. Yes. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to grow what, our, uh, what has always been grown here. And, and in that way, natural wine people have saved dozens, if not hundreds of indigenous grapes from, you know, basically uh, being ignored into extinction. Um, That's a point people don't think about. No. But they worked hard and, 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 towards that. And one more element is just basically taking wine off the pedestal. You know, so much of, of wine culture uh, you know, especially in mid-century um, America, was devoted to you know 
wine. It's so you have to be a connoisseur to under all of these uh, different grapes in different places and the aromas and the flavors. And, you know, you have to inhale deeply and swirl. And, the around you know, your neck. And no, <laughs> it's just it's just a drink. And you can drink it out of juice glasses if you want. You can right. drink it at the at the bar. You can sit around and party with your friends and drink, you know, good wine. Um, you know, what's important is that it tastes good, not that you can name 36 kinds of figs that you can, you know, sense in the aroma. Right. Um, so all of these elements have been so constructive in, in um, you know, the, in our wine culture over the last 20 years. And, and, you know, the people who are still talking about, like, cloudy stinky wines or you know what if my wine's not natural does that make it unnatural or you know this whole you know these arguments that they're they're so um pointless so has natural wine shifted from a movement to it's here now and this is part of what wine is and and my second question and i think i Talk to you a little about this off air. For the sake of saving grapes, which we just just discussed, farming, shouldn't all wines be made, you know, naturally? I mean, you know, you you ticked off a few things, economics and all of that. Um, but first things first, is it, it's is is it still a movement or it's it's here? Well, I mean, it's hard to say if it ever was a movement. Um, you a know, thing. I mean, is, I think that's from... you know, you know, one of the um, tensions in in natural wine, um, as in as in politics, is between people who want to organize, you know, that is define, um, create a bureaucracy that. That will consider these things and uh, doesn't and need so that. on. And people who say no, you know, part of the beauty of natural wine is its lack of organization and lack of of definition. And um, you know, this uh, I'm pretty much in the second camp uh, because the you know I believe it's true in in wine. The more you try to simplify things, the more industrial right. things become. Agreed. I mean, it's probably true in economics. It's it's true in agriculture. You know, the more species that you eliminate, these are not um, simple subjects. You know, you are then you then have a monoculture, and that's kind of the the path to destructiveness as far as the environment goes. So I think it's really healthy to have a lack of uh, organization in yeah, natural I, wine. Like politics, there's, and tens- a lack of there's tension between yeah. – right. Yeah, I mean there is tension. I, I think and, that will and, continue. And you know, this also uh, prevents it from uh, scaling up. So right. you, know, you see that now where people are trying to – to have the moniker, you know, natural. have the yeah greenwashing essentially, yeah. where they they want to call something natural, but it's not right. Eight hundred thousand bottles, right? Yeah. So I mean, you can still, um, 
you can use that as a guide. If people are making millions of bottles and calling it natural, it's probably not. Right. Um, right. Um, and, and to answer your question of whether all wine should be natural, I mean, you know, natural wine is an ideal. Um, and, you know, it works on a smaller scale. When you, when you make things uh, on an industrial scale, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to keep, um, to keep your ideals. You know, you, you cut costs, you make compromises, particularly when you get corporate. And, you know, we live in, in a world where the vast majority of wine is produced by corporations where you're not just answering. Like food. Yes. Process. So, you know, we have big, big ag and we have big wine. And, uh, you know, who, who are you answering to? Accountants, mostly. Right. That doesn't fare well for the universe, but that's the way it is. So, um, moving on. I'm curious about your reader today. Um, you know, you've been writing for, for a long time. Um, when you sit down and write, who are you writing to? I mean, who, who, who's the audience? I would guess it's guys like me that were younger and stuck with you and are older. Is there an infusion of uh, younger readers? You, you know, you and I talked about how you get input, you know, online and mail and all that, you know, so you have a sense of that. Um, I mean, when you sit down and write, do you have to be conscious of this or well, and, and um, how is it changed? You know, yes, you have to be conscious of the fact that, um, you know, I'm now I'm 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 now an older person. I like to say I'm still middle aged, but I'm inching up there. We're the new middle age. <laughs> and, um, you know, I well, to answer your question. I don't really sit down and write for any specific reader. I, I'm writing for um, what I imagine are intelligent, curious people who want to know more about wine, who want to drink more, better wine. But it, you know, the Times readership really ranges far from from people who know a lot more about certain aspects of wine than I might um, to people who just want to know what to buy at the at the store on their way home. So you have to find a way of, of you know, spanning that, uh, that those groups. And, and what I hope to do is varying the subject, not being too repetitive, I hope. Um, but also, you know, being conscious that there, you know, there are a lot of older times readers, but there are a lot of younger times readers too. And so I'm, I'm not going to like, you know, uh, infuse my articles with a bunch of like, you know, late boomer references. Right. You're going to be um, true to yourself. And I'm also, but you're going to recognize. Know, but I'm also not going to like pander to people by um, adding references that I, or, or language that are completely unnatural to me. Thank you know? God. <laughs> but so, uh, move away from the question for a second and just um, apply it to wine. 
have we seen the demographics of wine change? I mean, is there a younger wine drinker? Are they consuming as much, less? I mean, what do you know from your travels and what do you see? I mean, the consumer is still there, but there's new people. Do the new people do what the older people did? I mean, how is that? Um, well, the economics of wine today are a lot different than they were um, when I was younger How? and and especially when people older than me were getting into wine. Right. Um, and basically, um, uh, wines, good wines at every price range cost more uh, relative to what they did 20 years ago and 40 years ago. Um, so that means that the um, entry level is a lot higher. The uh, barriers are a lot higher for younger people who presumably don't have as much disposable income. Um, I mean, champagne's a great example. Well, you know, you can get a reasonable Sauvignon Blanc. You know, it's wine by the glass at a restaurant is a is a good example because you know what in New York City. You're paying fifteen to twenty dollars for a glass of wine in a restaurant. I mean, that's insane. That's crazy. And you know, for that same and and mostly wines by the glass are going to be sort of mediocre, unremarkable wines. And for that same price, you might get a cocktail that's mixed by somebody who really cares about cocktails using like crazy great, ingredients you know, or you might get a you know a, a great craft beer and um, I think younger people today are far more discerning than than I was at that age you know when I when I was um, getting out of high school in the 70s late 70s I had um, you know you had, like Budweiser and Miller, you know, there were two beers. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, there were a couple of beers, a few beers, and they were all the same. And then the, those all had a cheaper version, right. and that was it. And then you had, you know, there was one kind of olive oil and, and <laughs> one kind of coffee. And, you know, nowadays people grow up, you know, I mean, they're – forget about – uh, wine. There's dozens of different kinds of beers. There's, you know, Crazy. how many different kinds of single origin chocolate or Amaro's, you know, olive oil bitters. or vinegar or soap and <laughs> honey. I mean, all of these things, you know, people are, um, you know, more used to, to having to, to make decisions and to, to, to see the fine differences. So in a way, I think people are ready to learn about wine, um, but it's it's overcoming that um, economic barrier that is there for a lot of young people and um, other options. Yeah, other and, interesting you know, options. The um, Silicon Valley Bank in in California, every, which is very involved in, in they wine do a economics, study. they do a a annual report, and in twenty two, their annual report was focused on the danger to the wine industry of not um, attracting enough younger uh, enough younger people. That, you know, an overwhelming proportion of the uh, buyership for wine were still boomers and, and aging I think Gen they Xers. suck at it. They either do nothing about it or they suck at understanding but, that well, demographic. Well, you know, my um, 
quibble with their proposed solution. They they propose that you have to come up with a like a, a you know a good marketing campaign like the milk industry's got milk of you know 20 years ago whenever that was. My feeling is that younger people um, are very they're interested in in social justice, in diversity, in um, their story in, in the environment, in climate change, um, all kinds of things that the wine industry is positioned, has never paid a lot of attention to, but is positioned to take advantage of from a marketing scheme <laughs> if they actually did focus on it and do something about the issues right. that confront the industry itself. Yeah. And, um, yeah, That's, uh, uh, don't worry about scores. Don't worry about, you know, in California or wherever making like knockoffs of expensive Napa Cabernets, make I, I accessible think, wines. And, and you're seeing more of that. And people want to know the story about the farming, about the winemaking, you know, about a sustainability effort yeah. and all of that. Um, I think it'll definitely shift to that. Hopefully where it'll make a difference. Um, Lastly, before I subject you to our wine list, um, I just want to ask you a process question, your process. Um, a lot of the columns you write are subjects we've been discussing for the last hour, but a good chunk of them are, are wine recommendations, compilations, wine under 20, 12 Chardonnays, Rosé. Um, tell me about the process. I mean, how do you come up with the themes? Is it obvious? Is it timely? And how do you select the wines? And I only ask that because I think that's a big thread in your fabric if you, you know, read, you know. So I, I think I go, how's this guy doing all this? Well, it's it's important, I think, because people would like to um, know what's out there. They'd like to know um, what's worth drinking. And a lot of it comes through my own interests, like just in the last year. And I, you know, I, I guess I'm a little bit of a contrarian too. So if people say, you know, oh, California Chardonnay, I don't drink that. Or Bordeaux, it's so uncool, you know, things like that. I'm I'm, so stay with the Chardonnay because yeah. I think that's a good example of what yeah. you're trying to say. There's a perception California Chardonnay is big, right. buttery, popcorn yes. heavy and yes. all of that. Um, there's been a shift away from that in wine in general everywhere. People like that style, but other people. So the point of your Chardonnay column and recommendation was to offer people opportunities to look at wines that were not that. Is, yes. that, is that accurate? Which happens to be my taste. I don't really go for the buttery, uh, you know, extravagant But that Chardonnays. guy knows he's going to drink Rombauer or something. So the guy who's on the fence is going to well, listen to there's you. There's also a lot of people who might um, miss the fact that there are some – there are a lot of I Chardonnays from California that don't fit into that – that don't fit that stereotype that are actually might be more appealing to you. Um, given your taste. So, you know, my um, task then is to to find these wines um, that I feel and, and taste a whole bunch of them. So I'm picking wines that I'm enthusiastic about um, and can recommend for that reservation. 
is it typical where like on the Chardonnay thing, I think the story was 12 wines. You tasted 20, 30, 40. I mean, does it go well, that I'm deep also, or not necessarily? No, I, it probably doesn't because I'm, I know enough to be able to um, pre-select. Uh, so I, I'm not going to pick out wines that I know are not going to uh, fit what I'm looking right. for. Right. So but there, there's more than 12. Yes. You know, you know there's, there might be, you I have to narrow probably get 12 sometimes. out of 20. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then, you know, you... In, in, in a recent case, I just wrote a piece, um, uh, on sparkling wines that I, uh, you know, end of year sparkling wines. Right. And I decided to, I picked 14 because there were so many good ones. I didn't want to like cut it back to 12, but then, <laughs> you know, they couldn't find one bottle for photography. So I had to, and it ended up. 13. Uh, you got forced <laughs> so, back you know, to 13. Sometimes it, how the sausage is made is not pretty, but. Yeah, I would think uh, sparkling wine would be challenging because there's so many regions that are making great sparkling wines. I yes, mean, you could do always. that column on any one region. You Absolutely. Could probably pick 10, 12 cavas yeah. or sex or So, whatever. you know, I try to, I probably, you know, they're, you're kind of compelled sometimes just by you know, to do a Thanksgiving column every year or, right. or sparkling wine column every year. And I, I can do the same. I can do a sparkling wine column over five years and not pick the same wine over five years. I so, you know, in a sense, it's cumulative because I'm trying not I, – I don't believe like in, in great bottles. I believe in great producers. Um, you also mentioned – you don't believe in great bottles. You believe in great producers. I mean, there there are great no, bottles. No, no, I know. But, but you've also talked about drinking a wine that's good. You know, it's not the most famous or exceptional, but the circumstance and environment yes. uplifts the experience. Absolutely. The fact that the wine was there and it was good enough, it, it, it was memorable. Context is everything. Yeah. I mean, I think wine is one of those things that, you know, fits into that category, which is a really nice thing. Um, all right. Lastly. After doing this so long, I mean, do you do you still feel you have some challenges? Do you feel do what I'm doing, or I got to think of new things? I mean, what what, what do you think about you know 2023? You know, what do I have to do, or how do well, I keep it you know, fresh? You or always do you have, have to. to look at new things. And I think, you know, I'm always curious and I'm always um, trying to learn more. And as long as I have that feeling of, of curiosity Still and, there. and exploration. Because you exhibited that with the natural wine story, the Brooklyn story. You know, hopefully you'll that same. No, I absolutely feel that way. Okay. And, you know, if I were to get bored or just blasé about wine, I'd, I'd have to do something else because... And I, we're not there at all, right? No, I mean, not at all. there's so much going on, you know, to do that excites you, that's interesting, right? You know, I, I reviewed restaurants for uh, 12 years, and yeah, I got a little tired of doing that, and I thought, I you know, I don't really want to keep doing this. I've been writing about wine for... Um, more than 20 years and I'm never tired. I find it, the subject is fascinating in, in so many different ways, whether, I agree. you know, history, culture, personality, 
aesthetics. Right. I, I believe there's so many more aspects, yeah. you know, to wine that, you yeah. know, all require a lot of time, um, which I'm glad to hear that um, because I don't want you to go anywhere. I, and I also feel that I have more to say about it and I'm not just repeating myself. I'm not, uh, you know, struggling to, to find new ways of saying the same old thing. Well, that's... Um, that's important, but it's also a tribute to the topic. There's so much, you know, going on that requires different attention or, you know, no. It, it, and that's and what's there neat are about, a lot of ways to say the, yeah. virtually the same thing in different ways. Right, right. All right. We're not going to let you leave without doing our wine list. Um, we're almost done here. Five questions. As I mentioned to you, I've asked everyone that's been on this show the same five questions. So don't think this is hard. I don't think you're special. Um, so the first question is, what are you drinking now? And that's in the context of what's in your fridge. What are you trying? Maybe it relates to work. Maybe it's the change of seasons. Just a couple of things that you're knocking around. I'm drinking. Um, I'm drinking. I drink everything, honestly. Okay. But so that's, what I'm that's really, the first what answer. What I'm really curious about right now is um, – uh, the, the 2021 vintage uh, across Europe. 2021 was a really kind of bad year. Was that the frost vintage where you saw the pictures of the? There was frost. There was hail. There was rain. I mean, it, it was it was a tough year, um, and in, in a lot of ways, it was a throwback year to pre-climate change. You know, you had. Um, uh, 18, 19, 20, very hot years, uh, regardless of where right. you were, really. And then you had this, like, chilly, wet year. And some of the wines that I've had from 21 are great. I mean, part, part of the problem when you have a year like that is that yields are low. Right. So there's not a lot of it. But, you know, and you're not also everyone making, will make a great wine. Yes, but not the everyone makers will make a will great make. wine. But, but – Good producers had an opportunity to make wines in styles that that they haven't had for a, a you know a long time. Very transparent, weightless kinds of wines. Um, just to mention one, and I hope to write a story about this in the next few months as more of them come online. Uh, but the uh, Cabinet Riesling, you know, Cabinet. Uh, Cabinet we, is yeah. a drier reason, well, right? Well, not precisely. Um, in in Germany, the um, dry Rieslings have have been in style now for for a long time, and you know, they in in my experience in Germany, very few people are drinking Rieslings with any kind of modest modicum of sweetness to them. So it's largely an export market, but. Um, you know, if you have a sweet Riesling, there are certain degrees um, related to the ripeness of the grapes when they were harvested. So right. Cabinet is sort of uh, a moderate sugar content. Uh, Spätle is a, a little Sweeter. more sugar. Right. a more still and very so sweet. But um, recently, you haven't been able to make a classic cabinet style because of climate change where it just gets 
too warm and that you can't harvest the grapes at a modest sugar level. So the cooler weather is benefiting them? Well, in 2021, and I have a lot more research to do, but my impression is that, you know, this is a style that of people, and I was, I kind of, uh, was introduced to cabinet Riesling in the in in the eighties and really enjoyed it, loved it, and then you know, in the two thousand beginning in two thousand early two thousands, you couldn't really find that style anymore, right. even if it was called cabinet. Interesting. Um, I'm looking forward to reading more about that. Um, it basically affected all of Europe, right? I mean, yeah. France, Italy, yeah. you know, Germany, um, I'm sure other regions. Um, that's interesting. So you're drinking through 21s. All right. Second question. We'll move along. This is the goofiest question on the list. I'm uh, as the new year comes upon us. I'm wondering whether to leave it on. But the question is favorite wine and food pairing. Oh, yeah. Forget it. I don't care about wine and food pairings. But I get that. But is there something like wine is good with? Like I remember reading, you were talking about champagne and you said it's great with fried food and pizza yes. and all the classics. You so know, that's a good pairing. Or tomato, if, you have a, if you're making a tomato sauce, uh, cooked tomato sauce, uh, like I, you know, we have, my wife and I have a tradition of having lasagna on New Year's. Okay. And you make um, it? Yes. Yes. Okay. And it's just great with Chianti Classico. That's a perfect. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to take that because somewhere within the resistance is an answer or whatever. <laughs> but that's a good one. It's actually perfect. Um, all right. Favorite wine restaurant and or bar. And I'm going to take the word favorite out. And I want to disclaim it that if you choose to answer this question, that these are just some places you're not leaving people out and you're not listing them as your number one and two, but would you be willing to tell me some places out there that um, in the context of wine have the lists, the knowledge, the environment that are just, you know, um, well, let's just talk about new places in, in New York. Fine. Um, places that I've been to. That's over, all I care about. That you've experienced year. them. Yes. Not read about. Um, well, Claude, I told great. you he was on the show chase. Yes. It's a it's a terrific um restaurant. That falls into your story and writing about wine bar. Well, I don't think it's a wine bar. bar. Right. But um and, and we'll talk about restaurants first. Chambers, great. Pascaline. Uh, Pascaline. Um Wonderful. Laroque. Um Jorge loved uh uh that that place. I'm not really sure how to pronounce this. The the Nortwick, Nortwick, uh, Nortwick. That's yeah. Cedric. N I forgot Nisse's Nikkei yes. from yes. Eleven Madison. Yes, um, really good. Um, and then uh, uh, Lords and Dame, the fantastic one. Yeah, yeah. And, and, Is and Lords wine better than uh, Dame? Did he up the game, or both of them were well, always good? You know, they're they're di I, I, I love both of them, but they're very different. Uh, Lords has a much uh, deeper kind of selection. Is that because um, of the food, or you think his second time around, he said, "Here's a chance to get." I don't even. know. Yeah, I think I it's know. a little of every, all of I don't that. Know. Um, it's fun. Um, what else? Well. Um, 
I'm now I have to uh, kind of remember, but there are some uh, great wine bars. Um, uh, Parcel just opened recently. Wine bar. Yep. Um, uh, another one uh, not too far away on the Lower East Side, and and uh, I'm blanking on Gem? the name. Gem. Yes, Gem Wine. It's ex. I you know I really like that place because the wines are are. Um, the place is simple. The food is good. The food is good, but it's also simple. Um, you know, you're not going there for a full-fledged cooked right. meal. Right. Um, and, and um, you know, they're not giving you trophy wines. Uh, they're, for the most part, all under $100. And I, I really appreciated that approach. Uh, Plastifet. Yes. In, um, in Got great Clinton notices. Hills. Excellent. It's funny how all these places are incredible and they're not under a specific category like wine bar. Jim may be a wine bar, but they have great food. You know, Claude may be a restaurant, but it's as good a wine, you know, place as any. Yeah. The diversity. And a lot of these places are new, which indicates yeah. sort of a renaissance, you know, in New York and the fortitude of these people. Open and hospitality, you know, after tough times. Runner up in Park Slope. Yeah. Um, just, you I know, love Daniel Eddy. Just his great, food. Great and, food. Yeah. Um, simple yeah. food, great food. Yeah. Great wine list. Runner up is the wine bar restaurant to winner, which was yes. his COVID, you know, window takeout. Yes. Um, terrific. Those are all great choices. And I didn't mention this, but I post all this on social I media. I should mention Gus's from the Pacino people. Yeah. My buddy, uh, James. Yes. Um, who is also Popina, which is also a fun wine place. Yes. There's just so many, you know, great places. And you covered a lot of them. All right. Fourth question. When I initially structured this question, and I'm, I'm not sure how I positioned this to you when we did it, because you were on a few years ago, and we don't do this at Charleston. Um, the question was favorite all-time wine. And the initial idea for me was, hey, Eric, what's the rarest, most expensive wine you ever drank? And I don't give a crap about that anymore. <laughs> I morphed, do I. <laughs> I morphed away from that. What I realized is the question is really, what's can you identify a wine or two, uh, a wine that's been important to you, a, a gateway wine, uh, an enlightening wine, a wine that changed the way you thought? You sort of answered it because when the guy at, um, what is it, 360, the place in Red Hook, handed you that, that kind of falls in this category. So how do you answer that? Well, you know, you, for me, it's not been uh, – uh, not to not to send like a Hallmark card, but wine is a journey and you're constantly learning and, and you know, new bottles open up new points of view and new directions. And I mean, this goes back to like the very beginning of my interest in wine. Um, you know, when I was in graduate school in, in Austin, Texas, and <laughs> by accident, uh you know, bought a um, a bottle of Barbera d'Alba. Um, Do you remember the maker? Yes, it was a, it was 1978 Giacomo Conterno, and I had no, I never heard of that Giacomo Conterno, and you know, it was probably like a seven dollar bottle in in, in 1982. Right. Um, 
and I remember drinking it and, and just like being blown away and having, you know, it was like, oh my God, I had no idea wine could be this good. I have to keep, I have to find a way to have this experience again and again. So you start getting interested in wine and, and my pathway into wine has nothing to do with the greatest or rarest or most profound bottle. It, these are the, the simple bottles that you have almost by accident. I remember I used to, you know, I, I'd be very influenced by things that I read, you know, like people it in would a draw novel. you to that. Or I, I remember in, a, in reading a novel and somebody was drinking like a, a Moselle. They called it, it Moselle. They out, used right? the French spelling right. of the German wine. Right. And I know oh, I got to check that out. <laughs> That's funny. Oh, my goodness. That's really good. It was J.J. Prune Cabinet Riesling, Rocker Himmelreich. You know, very, very solid. I remember the first time I had a Burgundy, and it was in Eau Cote de Nuit, uh, Guillaume. So really the reality is is that those experiences are way more important than just sitting there and drinking whatever, 45 Roman well, Condi you know, or then, 61 Petrus, yes, which are all great. But. Because, I mean, they, you know, this is how you – all of these are important because that's how you develop your own context and your own taste. Right. So I remember, you know, the first time I had like a, a so-called great, you know, classically old great wine, I, I bought a bottle of – this, I mean, this is, this goes back 70s, 30, no, no, not, not college time, <laughs> maybe 1989 okay. or 1990. I bought a bottle of um, 1955 uh, La Mission Aubryon because my parents were married in 1955 and, and it was their wedding anniversary. How, Must have been their 30, 30. How was it? 30th, maybe it was their 30th, maybe 85. Um, and it was just magnificent. Was that when you look back, if you look back, was 55 considered a good vintage? Or? Well, that wine was considered a great wine. 55 Regardless was of the a, vintage, a good 55 maker. Could, was potentially a very good win, vintage, but there were inconsistencies. But the La, La Mission was renowned. And I remember like really splur, you know, just like, oh, I don't know, $200 <laughs> for this, you know, 30-year-old bottle. Um, and I swallowed and I bought it. You know, that's what I mean. Did I, you I, drink as a, it? As a, somebody in my 20s then, um, I, I could afford to do that. Whereas now if you wanted to get a 30-year-old bottle of, you know, well, like an 82 or whatever. 82 any Bordeaux. No, you'd be spending thousands of dollars yeah. and, you know, you couldn't Especially possibly. You can get a Lynch Bage for a thousand, but you're not getting yeah. a Latour. Right. You know, or the. Or La Mission. The, yeah. Um, that's, that's pretty interesting. That's. That's a good answer. All right, last question, and I, I think you should be as good as anybody to answer this. No pressure. Um, but the last question has always been, recommend to me the best wines you could think of around 15, 20, 22 bucks, a red and a white. You can go category like Muscadet is a good value. And I always, I'm very repetitive. My kids are in their mid-late 20s. They can't afford to go to a dinner party and bring all the crappy wine we've been talking about, supermarket industrial wine, 
but they can't spend 50. No. You know, so how do you wow with 20, this 19, is, um, 22? There's the, the way, here's how I would answer that. Uh, I'm going to recommend finding the best wine shop available. This means not, not, not a supermarket, not a big box store. You might find special buys in these places, bargains, but only if you know what you're doing. So you want to go to like a wine shop where they they care, they're incredibly passionate they're about curating. their wine. They're they're like you know going to what, what we used to call indie record shops, right. you know, where you're going. You might get like in an argument, but right. but um, you know, okay, I have. $15, just bring me the most interesting red wine or white wine. Um, is it how, you know, if you're pairing it with a dinner, okay, we're having, uh, Meat you know, or we're pasta having spaghetti or tonight with red sauce. This is, what do you think? Or chicken, or you know, Chinese food or whatever. Um, I, and that's how I would answer that question because it's no one thing. I would never say, oh, you know, you got to buy like a Muscadet or a, you know, uh, I would never pick one. Even genre though Chianti Classico goes great with lasagna on New well, Year's and it's a terrific wine in value. Yeah, you don't but, but, but not for maybe not for 15 bucks. Right. And, and um, you know, because the chances are that you're going to, end up with a wine from a place you never heard of, maybe even from a grape you never heard of, because the way wines stay cheap is by not having, by, by lacking status. Right. And, right. and you, so you need somebody who's truly um, educated to, to clue you in to what that is. I totally agree with that. And I've always, um, you know, push that idea. And I have a feeling that the last time you were on the show years ago, that that may have also been your answer. Maybe. <laughs> and I think that that was enlightening to me because even though I do it and it made sense, you know, for you to kind of walk it through out loud, you know, like if you go to Brooklyn, it's easy to walk into a cool wine shop and find that experience. It's that guy in no fun of Kansas City or um, Akron. But there are people out there that, uh, that there are, are curating this stuff. And, and, and you, one thing you neglected to mention, which you know, is you have to be expressive. You have to say, I'm eating this. I like this stuff. Yes. I want to spend this much. Yes. You know, and the guy will put you in that profile. And if, by the way, you don't like it, you go back and say, I didn't like it. Give me something and, else. And, or you and, go somewhere else. You know, by the way, all these, you know, you find like great wine in the most unlikely places. And maybe it's, you know, it's a uh, tribute to our own obtuseness that we, <laughs> that we think of these. Are, but I was looking for a wine recently and and I kept finding these bottles turning up in some shop in Auburn, New York, which is, you know, way upstate. I think they have a prison there, but I you know, you don't think of as a guy had as it. a as a yeah. great wine source. And wow. I got it. So you brought up a good point because when I asked you the question, you said, you know what, go into your local wine shop and talk to the guy about, you know, Good wine shop. Good wine shop. I, I meant to say that. A lot of people are shopping online. 
um, do we how, how do we apply this to online? You may not be able to, right? Well, it's not so easy online. But you know, one of the the things about shopping online is that there you uh, you have to have some modicum of education so you can make intelligent uh, selections. You know, right. um, I I think. You know, one of the real problems now, especially for for younger people who are relying on wine apps, you know, this is uh, or crowdsourcing here, and this, my friends are drinking this, or I'm, you know, this is a uh, uh, like peer to peer, or or you know, we're aggregating all of the right. the scores and the right. magazines like or, whatever, or whatever, but you're cutting out the. Um, you know, the, the educated recommendation. And this is not to, you know, sometimes your, your friends will definitely steer you in the white, in, in the right direction. Um, but sometimes you just need somebody who, who can make some recommendations because they've tasted it all and they have, uh, you know, some level of, um, you know, some critical faculties. I think that's why you support your local wine shop online, maybe good for fulfillment and price, but not being pointed anywhere. I mean, I hate to say this, but you take some of the tips from your local guy and every now and then buy it online, but I'm not encouraging that. You know, you also but have to, you also have to, you know, recognize that wine buying because of, of there's so much available, so much unknown that it's an adventure and it rewards exploration, but not every um, you know, not every purchase results in a, in a, right. a reward. Right. And, but you should go in that I accept way. that. I, I agree yeah. with that. All right. Um, I mentioned it already. I will post your answers on social media. I think people are very uh, interested in um, your recommendations and point of view. So in the coming uh, week, we will post that. Um, quick wrap up. I want to get some info from you, Eric, and then I'm going to let you go. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. If you like the show, leave us a review. Um, Here's why I tell you to subscribe. Eric Asimov is in your inbox (laughs) as soon as the show hits. You don't have to search it, and who doesn't want to hear what Eric has to say? Um, You can follow us on Instagram at SBenRuby, on Twitter at BenRuby. I know that's a little confusing, but you can always get to us via the hashtag The Grape Nation to find us on both. We are on Facebook at The Grape Nation. As mentioned, I'll post Eric's wine list on our social media sites. Um, if they don't know by now, we're going to tell them right now, but, um, if they want to find all of your work, it's at the New York times. Yes, it's at the New York times. Um, and, um, you know, it's just, you can Google it or duck, duck, go it or whatever you, 
Um, your chosen I don't wanna, search function is? I've been an online subscriber forever. I don't want to put you on the spot, but is any stuff available without you know being an online subscriber? You know, if you're not a subscriber, you may get a certain number of free okay. articles right. per month. Per month, but right. um, you know the the cost of subscribing to the New York Times online is is not great, and you get an amazing amount of content, and you support great journalism. Well, I think the Times epitomizes that. You know, I worked with Howard Stern for 30 years and he would always talk about how he would sit with the Times and was just amazed at how much content there was and how good it was and how he couldn't finish it. And it frustrated him. And I think anybody, you know, feels that way if, you know, they're a fan. And that certainly applies to you, you know, and wine as a topic. Um, I've I've said before, you are a prolific tweeter on Twitter. Not so much anymore. Okay. I mean, there's reasons and that's another show on its own. Um, but you are on social media. Yes. You're on Twitter. Uh, I'm at, at Eric Asimov and that's both Twitter and Instagram. Instagram. And I'm, I'm working on the other, the posts and the Mastodons and and so on. I just read about Mastodon today and spaces on Twitter is hot now. It's a new thing. I don't even know what when that is. When you get home, you'll look that up. <laughs> All right. I want to thank our guest, Eric Asimov. It's always a pleasure to sit with him. We covered a lot of ground, and I appreciate that. Thank you to our engineers and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.